invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 2, where we see a demonstration of what we just sang in Psalm 2. A people, in fact, God's covenant people, who have become like those nations of whom the psalmist speaks, who uh, want to, to put God's word away from them, to uh, break these, these cords, the, the, the word of God that they feel is, is restricting them, not realizing that the word of God he seeks to bring to them is that which brings life. We see also the judgment that comes to those who reject God's word, who reject his anointed. I'm going to um, consider especially 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, but I'll begin our reading at... Verse 19, Elisha is in the city of Jericho, and it says, now the men of the city said to Elisha, behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, the land is unfruitful. And he said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it, so they brought it to him. And he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel. From there, he returned to Samaria. Beloved, as I I said, we'll um, focus on those last three verses, verses 13 through 25, but verses 19 to 22 really present an interesting contrast where what you, you have in these two passages are, are really two different responses to God's word. Verses 19 through 22, the city of Jericho receives God's prophet and listens to his word. Then in verses 23 through 25, the city of Bethel does not. They do what the nations in Psalm 2 that we just sang of do. They, they want nothing to do with God's word. And based on the way that, that each of these two cities either um, receive or do not receive the word of God through his prophet, either blessing or judgment results, either blessing or curse. And it's interesting, the city that receives the word and therefore receives God's blessing in verses 19 through 22 is actually the cursed city of Jericho. Where in Joshua chapter 6, after the walls of Jericho had fallen, Joshua pronounced a curse and said, Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city at the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son, he will set up its gates. And sure enough, in 1 Kings chapter 16, a man named Hiel of Bethel is foolish enough to rebuild Jericho. And it says that he laid its foundation at the cost of his firstborn son and he set up its gates at the cost 
of his youngest according to the word that the Lord had spoken by Joshua. The effects of God's curse on Jericho seem still to remain. As here in 2 Kings chapter 2, it says that the water there is bad and causes the land or, or the people in the land to be unfruitful or unproductive. The Hebrew literally means barren or, or childless. It's causing miscarriage. That's the, the situation in verse 19. And yet, as, as God's prophet is received in Jericho... God brings blessing on the land and he heals the water. And verse 21 says that it no longer caused death or miscarriage. It's interesting that the initial curse on Jericho involved the death of their children. And here in 2 Kings chapter 2, that same curse still remains. Their unborn children are perishing like the children of that man who rebuilt this wicked city. And yet now God brings healing. As one commentator quipped, Curseville now becomes Graceburg. The cursed city receives God's blessing. And yet in in our passage, the one right after this, the blessed city, Bethel, becomes cursed. Bethel is the the city in Genesis chapter 12 and and Genesis 28 and, and 35 that is designated as a place of worship. Where Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 built an altar where Jacob in Genesis 28 um, heard God speak to him in a dream and said that he knew that God was in that place and it was none other than the house of God. And Jacob said, how awesome is this place? It is like the very gate of heaven. And Bethel was a blessed place where Jacob would later return in Genesis 35 and pour out a drink offering to God. It was a place of worship. It was God's house. It's what Bethel means. And, and yet, in 2 Kings chapter 2, God is not welcome in his own house. And, and so the blessed city becomes cursed. The cursed city receives God's blessing because they receive God's word, but the blessed city receives God's curse because they reject it. And just as the blessing on Jericho was that their children would no longer perish, in Bethel, God's curse bereaves them of their children. We see in these passages two different responses to God's word. One brings blessing and one brings curse based on the reception of God's word. And so as we focus on the latter of these two passages, God's message for us this morning is very simply, those who reject God's word will be rejected by God. They will receive the curse of the covenant. That's what these two bears are a picture of, the judgment of God that comes as the curse of the covenant on those who reject his word. And so as we think about this passage, having witnessed the sacrament of baptism this morning, it's it's a reminder of the other side of the covenant sign, even as it pictures cleansing for those who receive the gospel word that it signifies, also pictures judgment for those who don't. The flood of God's wrath falling down upon them. That's good for us to be reminded from time to time as we witness this covenant sign. 
that the blessing it pictures requires a faithful reception of the word that it signifies, and apart from that faithful response, it speaks of judgment. Those who receive God's word receive God's blessing, but those who reject God's word will be rejected by God. As we look at this prophetic picture of that second truth, I want to consider first this morning Bethel's rejection of God's word before we then move to look at God's rejection of Bethel. As we consider Bethel's rejection of God's word, I want to think about two things specifically. First, who it is that rejects this word, and then second, why it is that they reject it, or we could say the, the identity of the mockers and the motive of their mocking. And the reason why I think this is important that we consider their identity is because this is obviously the part of the passage that, that has caused a little bit of controversy. And the ESV says some, some small boys came out of the city, or the, the, the King James says some little children, which is obviously a little bit jarring as we, we picture here some very young children. But I think the NIV or the New King James are a little bit more helpful when they, they say some youths came out of the city. That's the actual meaning of the Hebrew word. It's a word that's actually even used of David at his anointing or of Joseph when he's 17 years old. And and so this is not talking about a gang of kindergartners who've escaped from recess. And, And yet at the same time, the fact that this word can be used of older boys should not lead us to deny that these mockers are are in some sense children, uh, because the author then goes on to to identify them not just as youths, but then in the Hebrew, he, he modifies that word with the adjective small or young. And so these are youths, but they're younger youths. Uh, most commentators think somewhere between maybe 10 and 12 years old. As one commentator put it somewhat anachronistically, they're older than second graders but haven't yet received their driving permits. They weren't a hapless band of five-year-olds coining innocent nicknames, but neither should we nervously juggle the data to transform them into junior college ruffians. See, we do need to remember that these aren't little babies, but culpable rebels, but they are children who God yet has every right to judge. In fact, this judgment is the direct fulfillment of Leviticus chapter 26. In Deuteronomy 28 and then in Leviticus 26, you have these long passages of the curses that will come upon God's people should they reject God and reject his word and be unfaithful to his covenant. One of those in Leviticus 26, God says, if you walk contrary to me and do not listen to me, then I will strike you sevenfold for your sins and let loose the wild beasts against you and they will bereave you of your children. This is that covenant curse. Or perhaps you recall in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 20, this was initially God's judgment against the Canaanites, that God told Joshua not only to kill the, the fighting men of Canaan, but even the women and children. And here, because the people of Bethel have become just like the Canaanites, God brings the curse on them that was originally meant for their enemies. They become like Canaan, and so God treats them like Canaan. Ever since 1 Kings chapter 12, Bethel has been becoming more and more like the nations around them. They, they made a golden calf and temple shrine in Bethel. 
of its own servants or, or um, sort of priests, its own high places. They have become like and implicitly accepted the, the false religion of the nations around them, and now they explicitly reject the true religion. Saying to God's prophet, who, who is the, the ambassador of God himself, who comes bearing God's word, and thus representing God himself, saying to him, we don't care what you have to say, get out of here. That's the substance of their mocking. And when they call Elisha bald, this is, this is not just because he doesn't have any hair and they think that it's funny. In fact, as he was traveling along the road, he likely would have had his head covered. And so it's not just that they saw some bald-headed man walking down the street and, and thought that they'd poke fun at his, his upper anatomy, although that would have been wrong too. But his baldness was likely either because of mourning Elijah's departure See in verse 12 that he, he tears his clothes. This is just after Elijah has gone up. In verse 12, he tears his clothes and um, shaving his head would have often accompanied that as a sign of mourning. Or, or some think that maybe the shaving of his head was even some kind of physical marking that Elisha would have taken on as a prophet to sort of distinguish himself from the rest of, of society. It would be something like a clerical collar. We don't know for sure. But it's probably not natural baldings. He still ministers another 65 years after this, and whatever baldness he had would have likely been covered anyway as he traveled up the road. These boys knew that this was God's prophet, who had either shaved his head in mourning or because he was part of this prophetic guild. And so their mockery of him is, is aimed directly at the fact that he is God's prophet. It's calculated. And we see this in the fact that, that if we, we read these verses carefully, it, it, it says that this showdown takes place not within the city limits, but on the way to Bethel. Verse 23 says they came out of the city to mock him. They saw him coming, recognized God's prophet, and these several dozen pre-adolescents went out to challenge him in keeping with the rebellious anti-religion of their parents. They hate the word of God, they hate God's prophet, and want nothing to do with him because they want nothing to do with the true God and true religion of Israel. Where do you think they learned this? I train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That proverb goes both ways. Bethel, the house of God, had long since removed God from his house, and that's what these children had been trained and nurtured him. Augustine even suggests these boys did this at the instigation of their parents, and that their judgment was inflicted so that the elders might receive a lesson through the smiting of their children that they might learn to fear the prophet whom they would not love. But before we look at that smiting and move from Bethel's rejection of God to God's rejection of Bethel, first I want to pause here and make a few points of application. Um, first, for the children, this passage, boys and girls, is a reminder that you are responsible for your actions. 
Even at a young age, we live in a culture that loves to excuse the actions of children, even children much older and children who do much worse. But God says here, no, I will hold you accountable. This is not what he desires for you, but his his desire for you is that you would receive his word and rejoice in those who bring it. The canons of Dort say that, that, that God mercifully sends proclaimers of this very joyful message. And so like we sang from Psalm 95 and heard in our our call to worship, we do not harden our hearts and and plug our ears at God's voice, but listen. Ask your, your moms and dads this afternoon to read with you question 160 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. That's what God desires for you as you come to hear his words. That's what he desired of these boys. But they would not, and therefore they they brought themselves under even greater condemnation as those who had opportunity to hear the word but rejected it. Don't be like these boys. Then moms and dads, this passage also reminds us not to be like their parents. I'm teaching your children by your disdain for the word of God or those who bring it to likewise not value the word, not hear Christ's voice, not receive his messengers. What a sobering reminder this is of the devastating effects of a parent's disdain towards the word preached on their children. Do they see you sleeping in worship? Flipping through your bulletin in disinterest, going home, not to confer on what you've heard, but to mock it. That is not going to help them receive Christ's word joyfully, but like we heard in Psalm 95 and in Psalm 78, it will lead them to harden their hearts in rebellion. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Um, Part of, of the way they receive their training is by watching us. And so Tim and Marika model for Wesley an eager reception of God's word. That's one of the ways that you either fulfill or undermine that third vow. Do everything you can, even in the way that you receive the word preached, to teach him to receive it. And not just the word preached, but in your home also. Let him see you reading God's word early And often when you sit down and when you rise up, when you sit around the table and when you walk by the way and and when you come together to gather with God's people and hear the voice of our good shepherd and the preaching of his word, teach Wesley to love the word and to not be like these boys and their parents who harden their hearts and reject God's word and so are rejected by God. That's Uh, What we see next as we move from Bethel's rejection of God to God's rejection of Bethel. Look with me at verse 24. We're in response to this rebellion. And by the way, I was just, as we were singing Psalm 2, just thinking about all of these connections between this passage and the psalm there. But but Psalm 2 is is really, uh, really a unit with Psalm 1. You remember in Psalm 1, at the very entryway into the Psalter, um, the blessed man in Psalm 1 is the one who doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers or of mockers. 
These mockers in Psalm 1, the ones who try to throw off the word of God in Psalm 2, that, that's, that's what we have here in Bethel. And in response to it, Elisha says in, in verse 24, it says that he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two she-bears came out of the woods and, and tore or, or mauled 42 of the boys. Can you imagine the scene? Can you imagine the, the shrieking of those boys? This is where hostility toward God leads. You try to come into God's house, Bethel, and reject him. He will reject you. This, this teaches us something about God. This teaches us something about God's righteous messenger. Elisha is not afraid to call down God's just judgment on the enemies of God. He is not afraid to ask God to do what God has already said he will. There are, of course, many who would object, who would, who would question the morality of Elisha's actions here, but we need to look no further than the end of the verse to see God vindicate his actions by answering Elisha's request and cursing these bad boys of Bethel with the very curse that he promised in Leviticus 26. Elisha's curse here was not motivated by, by a desire for revenge. This is not a matter of personal vindictiveness, but he understood himself to be God's representative and rightly interpreted their rejection of him as their rejection of God. This is not unlike those many Psalms where David, as God's anointed king, understands those who oppose him to be opposing God's kingdom and therefore God himself. David the king and Elisha the prophet are noting their their hatred and hostility toward God's word and God's kingdom and asking God to vindicate his honor. Asking God to fulfill his word. We don't know exactly what Elisha said. It's, It's as if he's saying, Lord, would you do what you said in Leviticus and bring the curses of the covenant on those who hate you? And this is Psalm 139, do I not hate those who hate thee and loathe those who rise up against thee? This is motivated by a singular love for God. And yet I would suggest even amidst this righteous hatred motivated by, by a love for God, I, I would suggest also even a love for these people. There is a kind of hatred that, that coexists with pity and um, even desire for their salvation. We see that in God himself, and I, th- I think we see something of that here in Elisha, where he is, he is graciously giving a warning of judgment to this city that they might repent. In fact, that's often the case in those psalms. Think of a psalm like Psalm 83, where, where it says, Fill their faces with shame, O Lord, that they might seek your name. And I think it's possible to see Elisha's curse on Bethel in that same light, that God might give this city a gracious warning of the greater judgment to come, and this small lightning bolt of judgment might awaken them from their rebellion and cause them to turn to God and avoid the hurricane of wrath to come just 100 years later, where the Assyrians would march in to destroy the whole northern kingdom. Or 130 years after that, as the Babylonians who do the same to the southern kingdom. 
This covenant curse predicted in Leviticus is but a foretaste of of the curse of exile and and destruction of their nation as God's ultimate covenant curse against them. And God is being gracious to warn them. He could have destroyed the whole city as he did Jericho or as he did Sodom and Gomorrah. He could have destroyed the whole mob of young boys. But only 42. Some got away. And they either repented because of that incident or that incident will stand to accuse them on the day of judgment. Or the parents of those boys. They either repented or this incident will stand to accuse them. But God was gracious to give the warning. He was gracious to spare some of them. And and then even after they refuse to amend their ways, they continue to reject God's prophets. And and he brings the curse of exile against them. He will later restore them and send them another prophet. Our Lord Jesus, who they mistreated the same way they did Elisha. Elisha, whose name means the Lord is my salvation, came to Bethel to save them, to to help them, but they would not have any of it. They cursed him. They mocked him. They scoffed at him like those in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. They said, go on up and get out of here. Um, Just like the text speaks of him as as, um, having gone up from Bethel to Jericho in verse 23, they say, keep going up right on out of here. Or maybe even go up like Elijah and just leave us alone. Ascend and get out of here. They mock him. They want nothing to do with him. When Jesus Christ, whose name likewise means the Lord is my salvation, comes to help them, how do they respond? His very own people in Nazareth, they drive him out of town intending to hurl him over a cliff. He heals the sick and raises the dead. They plot about how to kill him and how to get rid of him. He offers them salvation, but they want none of it. And just as the Jews in Bethel say to Elisha, go up. Go up, they cry out on Good Friday, go up to the cross, crucify him, crucify him. They, they mock him, they beat him, they blindfold him and say, prophesy, who hit you? And invite God's curse and judgment, Matthew 27, his blood be on us and our children. And just as those wicked parents in Bethel who either instigated their children or sat in silence as they mocked God's prophet, brought God's judgment on their children, so these wicked parents in Jerusalem invite God's judgment on theirs. As one church father writes, in their mocking of Elisha, the passion of our Lord is plainly prefigured. Just as those undisciplined youths shouted to Elisha, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. So the time of the passion, the insane Jews with impious words shouted to Christ, the true Elisha, crucify him. Crucify him. And just as Elisha, or just as under Elisha, 42 boys were killed, so 42 years after the passion of our Lord, two bears came in Vespasian and Titus and besieged Jerusalem. 
the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, he, he says, was prefigured by those two bears who were said to have torn to pieces the 42 boys for deriding Elisha. Now, whether we make anything of, of, of his play on the number 42, I don't think so. But he's right that the covenant curse of those two bears was the same covenant curse they welcomed on themselves in AD 70. That intrusion of God's judgment pointed to a yet greater judgment. And even as Elisha's encounter pointed to that day, so it it still points further yet. Because God's judgment still awaits every single person who rejects him, every single person who mocks him, every single person who doesn't listen to his messengers and obey his word and receive this doctrine of salvation that is preached to you by our chief prophet, Jesus Christ who not only comes to preach salvation, but also comes to provide that salvation and and take the judgment that we deserve being mauled by God's wrath on the cross in our place. As if he were the mocker in 2 Kings 2, the, the rebellious child, the foolish parent, that we might never have to taste God's wrath. Christ will either come against you as those two bears did on the day of judgment or he will be for you, the very child sent by the Father to be mauled for you on Calvary. And Christ will either come against you as those two bears did in Bethel or he will be for you, the child sent by the Father to be mauled for you on the cross. He is the greater than Elijah who comes this morning to Bethel to save. Don't reject him, but recognize you can either receive him now and be received by him on that day or reject him now and be rejected on that day. That's the message of the gospel. It's it's part of, of the message of baptism. Receive the Christ who is preached to you in the word and receive his blessing or reject him and the baptism of judgment that he underwent will be yours. Receive him. Do all that you can to teach your children this doctrine of salvation. Tim and Mariah could teach little Wesley about his chief prophet, Jesus Christ, who fully reveals to us the will of God for our salvation, who mercifully sends proclaimers of this joyful news and teach him about the judgment that will come on those who reject it, that he might flee for refuge In Jesus Christ. May that be true of all of us that like Jericho, the one on whom God's covenant curse once rested, we might receive God's gracious blessing instead. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that speaks of Christ and that in your kindness you mercifully send proclaimers of this joyful message that as we receive it, we might find rest and might be blessed. I pray that that would be so for each of us and each of our children, and in in particular this day for Wesley, that he would hear and heed the voice of Christ and in him find refuge, fleeing from the judgment that he and we deserve to find refuge in the one who bore your wrath in our place so that we might know that blessing that is pictured there even in the way that you bless those people 
in Jericho, giving them a little picture, a little foretaste of eternal glory. For as far as the curse is found, it will be reversed and death will be no more. We thank you, Father, that you are a gracious God who desires that as we receive that word, we might receive that blessing. We pray in Jesus' name.